with Ubaldi Reports. With me is my co-host, Joe Bitts. Just to let everybody know, we're both retired combat Marines from Iraq and Afghanistan. And we got a special guest today. We've got Lance Christensen from the California Policy Center, who is an expert in education. He spent many years in the California legislature as a staffer for various Republican lawmakers at the assembly level and at the Senate level. Now he's working for an educational policy center that deals with California issues. But education is something that, especially with this pandemic, affects everybody. How's it going, Lance? John and Joe, so good to be with you guys. Glad to talk about education in the the country and whatever we want to talk about in California. It's a mixed bag. Really, to get started on it, what was education like before the pandemic compared to now? Depends on where you went, right? Some states had a very advanced and innovative education system, allowing kids to learn different formats and places and platforms. Some states have been experimenting with things along the lines of school choice or what you call education savings accounts. A lot of states don't have the sort of strength or stranglehold on bureaucracy like the public sector unions and teachers unions. In California specifically, education was floundering. A lot of people want to talk about how much money we spend on education and that somehow correlates to the quality. But you go to places like Idaho or Utah or Tennessee, Texas, they don't spend as much money on education, yet their outcomes are far superior than what happens in California. It was a mess here, at least in California. Other states, it just depended on where you were. When we talked offline, there was a columnist named Dan Walters, and he writes California politics at the Cal Matters. It's it's a nonpartisan think tank, which I follow California politics. And he said exactly what you said. More money doesn't correlate into better educational outcomes like other states face. And even the Reason Foundation, I think was 2018, I think you're familiar with them. They did an expose on L.A. Unified School District, and their budget is a disaster. How is funding looking at some of these schools between the states or even just in California in general? Let me stick with California because I know that the best. But California expenditures are are massive. They take up a huge portion of the general fund budget. They take a, a massive amount of property taxes from the locals. And it's funneled into these districts where the districts spend anywhere from 18 to 20 some thousand dollars a year per kid. Now, if you're a classroom with 35 kids in that classroom, that's an amazing amount of money flowing through that classroom. Yet, a lot of that is built into teacher salaries and benefits, which again, we've got to pay teachers and administrators some amount. I have, don't begrudge that. But the amount of discretionary funding is so small that you don't really get the opportunity to do a lot with the extra stuff. So for instance, if you have a kid that's going in to high school and they get this funding for per pupil spending, you want to make sure you count for every kid in that school. But if you're a public school, you're not necessarily guaranteeing that you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And so that that kid, you just want their pants in a seat. You want to make sure they show up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to teach them what you need to teach them. And in, in California, we've got a lot of problems. Remediation for college classes in math and English are in the 70s percentiles. In other words, a graduating senior will go to a community college and about 70 plus percent of them have to retake their entry-level math and English classes. So the amount of funding, again, doesn't correlate there. And a huge problem we have in California is the proliferation of teachers union membership Correct. that takes $100 a month 
for dues and uses that on their own sort of political causes and campaigns and lobbying efforts in the state capitol for which a good number of teachers may have objection to, and yet they have very little say. And so the challenges are rife in California. Spending is is huge, especially after this pandemic. The amount of federal funding that came in, the special, the, the CARES Act or the other federal funds, stimulus right. funds through, these schools have no problem with money right now. The challenge is they were supposed to use it on things like educating special ed kids or cleaning their ventilation systems or doing some different programs to make sure that these kids could come back on campus and not doing it. Well, because my, I've got family in California and I've got a brother that's got three kids. He's got two girls and a boy. His oldest son is a Down syndrome child. And I hope I didn't say the, an acronym wrong, but he's a Down syndrome child. He's a senior. Well, he's been learning at home through Zoom. He needs in-person learning. His youngest daughter has a learning disability and some other issues with academic learning, but she also needs in-person learning. And they're at some kind of hybrid model where they're only going to school twice a week from eight to noon, and that's it. Now, going back to the funding issue, I think there was a proposition, was it Prop 98, where they mandate 45% of the California budget has to go to... K through 12? Yeah. So Proposition 98, to be specific, mandated around 40% of that. That said, there's a lot of other money that comes to the general fund that goes into it, as well as property taxes. And they kind of envision the budget as a bucket. So if you're in a certain school district or an area and you get good property taxes here in Marin or Orange County, a large chunk of those schools will get a good amount of that money for their education through the property taxes. Those that don't acquire as much will get more in general fund spending, but it just depends on where you are and how much money you get. But it's Prop 98 takes up probably close to 53 to to 60% of general fund spending every year, depending on what you're talking about. Lance, my question is now, does it matter? Okay, you were saying the area, so the well-to-do counties, Orange County, that they get property tax goes towards the school for their funding. So does that mean the better the area, the better the funding? Not necessarily, actually. Years ago, there was a lawsuit, not getting the details, it was called Serrano. The idea was these poor areas that don't get quite as much money, what do you do? You're not Beverly Hills or Malibu or Marin. How do you get that money? And basically the judge, the court said, no, everybody has to get about the same amount of money. And so over a period of years, that smoothed out, but property taxes in wealthier areas are going to require less general fund spending so that money should go to the poor areas and usually does, at least in California. Again, well, that, it doesn't that, translate into better outcomes, but it goes there. That's good because that kind of went into a question that one of our listeners had. Her name is Patty. She says, what is your knowledge and opinion on public schools in wealthier neighborhoods receiving more funding per student than funding for impoverished neighborhood public schools? A friend of mine, his name is Lance Azumi. <laughs> We're not related. He's over at the Pacific Research Institute, and he actually wrote an entire book on this issue. Oh. The title of the book is not as good as, it, as you think. And the idea is that people assume they move into a neighborhood that's wealthier or better to do. And they assume that the school correlates with that zip code. And it's not true. Again, just because you get more money, most of these schools are controlled by teachers unions and doesn't correlate to a better product, but there may be more money. Lance, I just wanted to go back. The name of the book is not as good as you think is the name of the book because he threw me off there for a second. Yeah, it's the name of the book. And it's the idea is is right on. Just because you think you're going to a good school district and a wealthy area doesn't mean that's going to be the case. It's interesting because like I said, I follow California politics through Cal Matters. And prior to the pandemic, 
Dan Walters wrote a column, I think it was 2018, 2019, and it was a report that was buried in the Department of Education for California. And for our listeners, they don't know this. California is a solid blue state, up and down. Every elected office is a Democrat, a supermajority in the Senate, supermajority in the Assembly. But in the report, it said that 70% of minority children, specifically African-American and Hispanic children, are deficient at grade level. And so when they had the George Floyd killing last year, I was just curious. I wonder what it's like in Minneapolis. Same thing. Then I went around the country, all the major urban centers like Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, D.C., everywhere. It was all the same. 70% are deficient at grade level in math and English. And then I did a little more research, and we spend as a nation about I'm not, close to $800 billion on education. But we're at the bottom of the heap when it comes to what we're getting out of it. So what are some of the challenges you're seeing now, especially now during the pandemic? It's got to be worse for these kids. There's a couple of challenges. One is when we get a massive influx of federal spending for these local school districts, people might think that's going to the right place. But just take LAUSD, which is the second largest school district in the country, Los Angeles Unified School District. They have 600,000 students in that district. 35,000 employees, most of them you know, are teachers and administrators, and their unfunded pension retirement liability is it's close to $7 billion, yeah. seven with a B billion. Now, that's just their pension. That's not talking about the retiree health care, which is close to $15 billion. Correct. So if you take those two numbers together, then you have a massive problem in funding for liabilities down the future. Now, why does that pertain to kids now? You have to pay that debt at some point in time. Correct. So the money that comes in supposedly to educate these kids goes to pay for pensions and other benefits for which they can't pay for. So that's a big problem. After the pandemic, a lot of these kids don't have good internet service. They may not have computers at home. They probably had to borrow them. They probably have a single parent or dual income households that don't have the opportunity to watch their kids and to help them with their studies. I'm happily married. I've got five kids. My wife works her tail off. All five kids are in school. She works her tail off to make sure that works. And I have a good job or I can work at home. But what about all those other families that can't do that? And so it's a complete mess. And so going forward, the question in California needs to be, is there a way that we can provide these resources to the students to help take care of their educational needs and not just keep plugging into the public school system that flushes it down the toilet. Well, but you make a good point. I got two brothers, one in Washington and one in California. They're two parent families, but the one in California has got, like I said, he's got kids that have some needs and they're not getting the quality education. And then to his wife is just pulling her hair out to deal with all this. Just like, I know your wife. She's, she's a stud. She knows how to do things, but it's a challenging to have five kids or my brother, three kids, all at different age levels. But what you mentioned about pension and healthcare obligations, that's vindictive all over the country. And it's ironic. If you remember, we're talking about trying to open the schools this year, but last year, Los Angeles Unified, Chicago Unified came up with this progressive wish list, defund the police. We want billions in extra money. We want Medicare for all. We want it. And this is the next segue. We want to end charter schools where a lot of these charter schools are providing good bang for the buck. But on that question, are charter schools part of the public school system or is it separate? Yeah. So 
in California, at least, and in most states, a charter school is a public school. It's just the funds usually go to the charter as opposed to the public school that's in the district or your home okay. district. So in California, actually, you bring up a really good point. In California, the public schools have been so terribly run. And with the pandemic, they knew they couldn't compete. So last year, they passed a budget bill to cap the amount of money that could go to charter schools. That's how vindictive they are. And now they have a bill this year that would basically regulate charter schools out of existence. It's AB 1316. Um, California listeners should look it up and they should really be upset about this because here's what happens. When you take away that choice and the ability for people to make a decision about where to send their kids, all you're doing is warehousing these kids and sending them through the system. So we should have options out there. And, And that's a discussion I'm highly involved in right now. No, I agree with it because in New York, Mayor de Blasio in New York City, the charter schools are in the same building as the public schools. They're taking the same kids from the same community. But what they want to do is end the charter schools, even though the charter schools come up with better results. And here's a, here, two more ironies. One is most of these public schools, if they have what they call a dependent charter, meaning the charter school is a part of that district, they take a cut off the top that doesn't go to the charter school to administer those funds. That's money that's just free money for them. And then two, these charters have to take every kid that comes to them. A public school can encourage you to go somewhere else and charters can't refuse anybody. So there's a certain weird irony about this, but in California, they're trying to get rid of any competition for these public schools. Public school and charter schools are still maybe maintained by the county or the state. But yet, charter schools are doing a lot better than public schools. Why are charter schools doing better than public schools? Often because charter schools are released of a lot of regulations on public schools. They're able to be a little more flexible and innovative. The other thing, too, which is not universal, but it's pretty standard, is most charter schools don't have teacher unions. And uh, we have an example down in San Diego. It's called the Gompers Preparatory Academy, where years ago, the school was failing, drug-infested neighborhood, lots of crime, kids were dropping out. They changed the school to a charter school, put everybody's in uniforms. There were certain sort of demeanors and expectations. The school is now sending its first kid to Harvard, and the school has turned around tremendously. Why? Because the teacher's union didn't exist. Okay. But now what's happening is the teacher union is trying to infest itself back into Gompers to do the same thing they tried to escape 15, 20 years ago. And is that the same as in maybe public versus uh, charter versus private school. Is that the, the same thing that you're, you're mentioning about the teachers union not being so involved? If you're at a private school, I don't know if I know a private school that has a teachers union in it. And most of the time, I once a long time ago taught elementary school. And it was amazing to me because the co-teachers I worked with were all public school teachers that had taught at the private school sector for a while, left. Why? Because of pay and salary. But guess where they sent all of their kids? To private school. So it's not, again, a correlation of money. It's all about merit, competition, those kinds of things. It's interesting because I taught substitute teaching as a private school. I love the curriculum, the way they did it. It was a more collaborative learning. They didn't get settled into these rules and regulations. But the point that you make that I've always been making for months and years, it's ironic. Those who are big into public schools send their kids to private school. Like I told my brother that the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, his kids have been in in in-person learning since October. And when I told him that, he goes, we got to get off the phone because I'm ready to scream. And that's like President Obama sent his kids to private school their whole life. But going back to what Lance was talking about, I think we maybe 
breached solving a problem that we always bring up on the show is how can we make the schools better? And by maybe teachers having that, maybe that in the back of their mind, fear that they can get fired and the union can't do anything, there's no safety net to protect them, makes them maybe teach better. Now, does that play into curriculum? Do the teachers union control what curriculum is being taught in the schools? Yeah, in different and weird ways. In California, we have uh, a lot of ethnic study issues, critical race theory you're hearing about more and more. The comprehensive sex ed stuff that really is, it's more pornography for kids than it is education. You've got all these kinds of common core. A lot of those are advanced by teachers union. And a lot of it, it's like an accountant doesn't want complex tax codes to go away because it makes them unemployable. So if you have complex educational systems that don't make any sense to you or I, the teachers union can argue that they're more important to keep around because they know how to do that. Whereas you have their private school counterparts are just like, no, it's all about teaching the basics. And it's being rigorous in our expectations and our curriculum and, and making sure that the tests are appropriately driving the sort of needs that these kids have. And that's not what, that's not what's happening in the public schools. Now, how do vocational training play into this? Meaning those who want to go into the building trades, but also those who want to go into the high tech, meaning drones, cybersecurity, and things like that. Because there's a couple of friends of mine who own a cybersecurity company and a drone company. And I asked them, do you need a college education for this? They say, no, you just have to have the experience and knowledge to get into this. These are high paying jobs. This isn't flipping burgers or flipping chicken at Chick-fil-A. Yeah, no. And we should never demean those things. My brother uh, is a crane operator, never went to a day of college in his life. And guess what? He makes big buildings in Atlanta, Georgia that other people aren't qualified for. I, my nine-year-old, who's a third grader, he's got his own drone. You're just talking about drone. He spends every day flying that drone and he's amazing. He's also doing a lot of coding and different things like that. The kid just he might not go to college. And frankly, I wouldn't push in that direction. I think college is a fine opportunity. I did it, but it so, doesn't have to be the only way for every, we don't correct. have to send every kid to Harvard. It's dumb. No. And then that kind of leads me on to my next question, adding on to what John was saying about tech versus schools. Is curriculum a big key in when it comes to the education percentage of learning? That was going to be one question, but let's kind of transition over to John, where why not from the jump, like maybe kindergarten? Like be like, okay, this kid needs to go over, or why can't we build up these kids to say, not all these kids are going to go to college. Not all these kids are going to try to figure out the word for it. But my son, he learns differently than somebody else's son, but he is more involved and more hands-on. So he has more of an engineer kind of thought process where maybe his friend has more of a mathematic or calculation process. And then it affects them in the long run when the state testing comes in and says, your kid's under level, this kid's above level because they take the same test and they score differently. Yeah, I, I think there should be some sort of ability to help route kids to their core competencies. And we can do that without sacrificing a basic education, having learning how to read and write think critically and do, you know, basic computation and math. I think learning history and science are all important, but that doesn't have to be the end all be all. And if some kid has a competency in say welding or in coding, or maybe it's a, a youth that is really good at dancing or art, maybe they have a, an interest in sports. Again, not to say you can't educate them, but we should allow that sort of learning and progress with parents instead of this 
this mindset that no, it's got to be college. It has to be a master's and a PhD. I, I just think that what we do is we set these kids up for failure when we send them off to college. My best friend in high school went to one of the most prestigious engineering schools in the country, and he was smart enough to do it. It wasn't a matter of smarts, but just couldn't leave family and home. And after he went there for a year, he realized he was out of his depth and he ended up doing the hospitality industry and became very good at it. So there should be different pathways for all these kids. My brother, it's the same thing as your brother. He's a superintendent for a construction company. He makes a high six-figure salary. And we were talking uh, a couple months ago. I have a master's degree. I'm no smarter than he is. He's running multi-million dollar 50 to $100 million construction project. You can't be a moron doing that. If he read everything I read, then he would know all this stuff. But yeah. like I said, he's no smarter. And I look at Germany. I don't want to duplicate everything the Europeans do, but Germany has a very innovative vocational training program deep into the K through 12 system that we just yeah. don't have. Yeah. I think, I think the, the thing that sets us apart from all the rest of the world is freedom, the ability to choose. And if all 50 states are labs of democracy, then other states can show how they do different things better. And we should take all of the best stuff, the best practices and implement it into our educational systems. If we can do that a million different ways. It's not just one or two different models. How does school choice play into, because that was a big issue during the presidential campaign. How does school choice play into all this? So I'd like to reframe it. I think we need to reframe that, that issue that? nationwide. And here's how I reframe it. We need parent-directed education. Because after when people say school choice, it's like, what does that mean? Do I just go to different places on the same garbage? No, it should be that the parents are highly integral in their kids' education. It doesn't mean they lead every single thing, but they can have a good idea about what direction their kids. I, I know my kids better than my kids and better than their teachers know their, than my kids. So how do we direct kids in a way that makes sense? And that might be choosing a different school or within the same school, different programs that make sense. So if we think about it that way, it gets away from this weird sort of, it almost become a partisan talking point, and it doesn't need to be, because most of the people I work with on this issue are progressive liberals from Hollywood who agree with me. So well, it's, it's a strange world. When you talk about parent involvement, like I know Joe, when they were doing the pandemic and his kids had to learn by Zoom, they were heavily involved. Like when I was a kid, my father only had a fifth grade education. So he wanted his kids educated. Whether you went the vocational route or whether you went to college, you went to school to learn. He didn't care about PE. He didn't care about ceramics. He wanted you to learn things that's going to get you a tangible job. And that include, like I said, vocational training. And now because of computer technology, there's cybersecurity, there's network administrators, there's all these, and even including drones, which are going to be huge. Even in the military, we embraced all these concepts time I came in, it was far different than when I left. So I just want parents to have more of a say how their child is educated and yeah. less bureaucratic mess. And the pushback you always get is from the education elite or the educrats, as I call them, the ones that tell you, no, you don't know what's best for your kid. I may not know all the pedagogy and all the specific terms and, and, and processes. I don't need to. But I know that if I can find the right people who do, who have a genuine interest in my child, they'll make the right decision. And then the other argument is, what about those people who don't care about their kids? They're already warehousing them at a public school. So why hold everybody else back? Because a few parents can't figure this out. I don't know. Let's figure it out 
for the majority of parents who really want to help direct their kids. And if they want to send them to a public school, their district school down the street, fine with me. All choices should be on the board. But even some of these parents who are like, I know friends who are single parents, they want the best for their kids, but they're stuck going to this school. They don't have choice. Like I use Los Angeles, New York as an example. A lot of the African-American communities want choice. They want charter schools. That's what Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, won in the minority communities because he was pushing and stressing choice, charter schools, an alternative. You have a say how your child is educated, and we need to change that. In Arizona, they have no school district boundaries. You want to take your kid to a school across town or across the state, you can do that. You just have to get them. I think that allows for districts to compete a little bit. So there are ways we can do it that don't disrupt the entire system. But again, it means public schools have to step up. They do. Parents have to step up. That's like I said, if you would have called my parents and said, I'm going to call your, your kids goofing up, that was a death sentence for me. I would have been on the ground begging, just waterboard me now. Nothing what's going to happen when my dad gets me. But this is the problem we're having. And this is correlating into, I don't know if your organization follows this, is the um, educational system when we go into college. I mean, they're talking about ending student loan debt. I know President Biden only wants to end it at 10000 you got Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Chuck Schumer want to end it at 50000 But it's ironic, which most people don't know this, is when they passed the Affordable Care Act, a rider went with it, the Educational Reconciliation Act that nationalized the student loan program. They didn't fix it. It was a problem before. They just put it on steroids. And kids are graduating with thirty or $40,000 in debt and getting what? Here's the problem. When the federal government gets involved in education and spending, they inflate the cost of education. So if you're guaranteeing you're going to pay all sorts of scholarships or grants through the federal government, a university is going to do what they can or a college to take that money. And where do they spend it? They don't spend it on the kids. They spend it usually, as we find in California, on administrators. So when we send kids off to college, they're not getting what they paid for anymore like they used to. And so it's the same sort of problem, just in a different realm. No, you make a good point because this is going all over the country. The administrative salaries and the administrative budgets has skyrocketed. You have some of these elected officials like Robert Reich. When he left the, I think, the Clinton administration, he taught one class at UC Berkeley. One class, three months. He made about $400,000. And you got these administrators making high six-figure salaries, like going back to the school system. Take Baltimore. School chiefs making a quarter of a million dollars when 70% of their kids, African-American kids, can't do math or English to grade level. Going back to the college thing, if it is a sports college, does any of that money go towards the sports, or is that kind of like their own little thing on the side? It just depends. I think a lot of those funds are segregated. So your tuition is not paying for your football team and they have to get it based upon ticket sales or advertising, whatever else. But then there's a whole other argument we've had recently with a lot of these athletes that go to a college and they can't work a job. So they're trying to figure out how to either do it on loans or scholarship. They might get a partial scholarship, but this has been taken all the way up to the Supreme Court on whether they can get paid or not. So we have this almost arbitrary monopoly over college education and kids' ability to make a living while they're at college, if they're on scholarship or play these different programs. I think that's going to have to be adjusted in the future going forward too. But tuition really is too high for most of these colleges because we're paying for a huge amount of administrative costs that just don't need to be there. Well, but it's interesting that uh, Congressional Representative Maxine Waters, I think it was last year, 
she had all the bankers in front of her committee. I think it was the House Banking Committee. And she admonished them. So what are you guys doing for student loans? And every one of them said, we haven't touched student loans in about 10 years. And to me, everybody laughed at Maxine Waters, but I would also have been embarrassed by, and you've worked in the legislature. How many of these committees have lawyers, staffers, not one of them knew that they nationalized it? The banks haven't touched it in 10 years? The problem is we pass so many laws that nobody reads. Uh, I have a little speech I give to high school students and college students where I just say, listen, if you were to take the statutes of California and just the books and line them up side by side, like you would on a bookshelf, they would be about 56 feet wide. And you're responsible for every comma and semicolon and period in that, in, in those pages. And most people don't even think about it that way. So if you have a legislature that continues to create these programs and subsidize things and send budget dollars a certain direction, good luck keeping track of all that stuff. In the state of California, we have a great state auditor, Elaine Howell, who's amazing, who tries to keep track of all these things. And she can really stay on top of it. So once she does a report, the legislature reads a report, that's about it. There's no fixing it. And in California, the schools are constantly a subject of state audits and the funding that goes in and out and the waste, and yet nobody does anything about it. And I can't imagine that's any different in Congress. That's the same thing on the federal level. Both Joe and me came from the military. I believe in a strong national defense, but we spend on things like, why are we spending on that? Does that meet the mission of the U.S. military? If you look at the Department of Defense, it says deter, to deter war and, pre- and protect the homeland. Why are we spending on this and this? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So uh, I maybe want to go back to maybe improving education a little bit. But while we're still talking on college, I want to maybe get your opinion or just your view on maybe what if we took more of like a college approach where we would focus a few hours on one subject throughout the week or and break it up between the week? No, I think it's beautiful. It's a great idea. A lot of schools are going this direction where they're doing more block type programs instead of having six or seven or eight classes in a day. It's three or four, and then they'll uh, switch up at semester. A lot of charter schools will do a su- subject for a month and that's all they do for a month. And okay. so once that's done, then you've really mastered that and you can move on. I think also, too, we might want to think about how the Khan Academy became so successful in terms of a supplement. He took the model and flipped it upside down and basically said, hey, we've got to track how these kids are learning across the longitudinally and then correct for all these pieces and then spend the time in the classroom answering the questions instead of spending time in the classroom going through all these little things, which people can usually learn on their own. There's a lot of ways we can start to address the effectiveness of education in the United States school system. Prior to the pandemic, every what, April, they did state standardized testing. Has that gone away? And what was the effectiveness of standardized testing? If you're not tracking longitudinally your tests with kids, in other words, if you're not giving some sort of pin number to a kid so you can identify that kid and track them over the long haul, it's not effective because all you're doing is you're chasing ants. But if you can say, okay, these kids have gone through and these schools have done well enough that this school has a model we should think about, then you can hold that school accountable or reward. But we don't do that for a lot of things. And before the the pandemic, you could take a a test in a classroom. But now if you're in front of a computer, how do you know these kids aren't cheating? 
or aren't having a parent in the room or a friend give them the answers. We were just going through this last week with my eighth grade son, who's been trying to figure out how to get his different standardized testing done. Uh, The amount of protocols you have to go through just to do it at a distance doesn't make any sense. And frankly, I'm not going to believe these results next year when they come out. There's no fealty to them. And so- We have a real problem. We haven't done a longitudinal stuff and there's no real strict guidelines to make sure that's all consistent answer. Now, how is this standardized testing affecting the African-American and Hispanic community? Because before the pandemic, like I mentioned earlier, 70%, this is all over the country, are deficient at grade level in math and and English. I can't imagine what it's going to be like now when they haven't been in a classroom within a, in a year. Yeah. So you live in an apartment complex that doesn't have reliable internet or your neighbor's in the door is a drug dealer is up all night. We don't get any sleep. Your computer broke because something crazy happened and you can't get access to fix it. Yeah. How are you going to do with those? And just in our school district, anywhere from five to 10% of the kids that are supposed to be enrolled in classes, they can't find or track down. Most of these kids during the day have literally just turned their screens off. They check in, their name's on the screen, they blink the screen, they mute themselves, and they walk away, play video games, watch TV, go play sports with their friends. This is happening all the time. I have zero confidence that we've done anything to improve the educational outcome of these kids, especially those whose parents are not around to monitor them, who have to work a job, or who only may be in single parent households and can't do it. It's a huge cluster. A friend of mine teaches at a charter school in Arizona, and they've been going back and forth because of, you know, obviously COVID. But he said there's like a good chunk. I think he said 40% are failing. Yeah. Exactly what you In charter schools, I think they've had the advantage for a lot of them because there's models they've been working on for years to do the sort of online learning platforms. What They have a system down. So like when this whole thing happened, it didn't hurt them because they already knew how to do this. Uh, whereas the public schools didn't and they still don't. And so that's where most of these kids are. They're harbored in these public schools. And again, I can't say it enough. They're warehoused in these schools. There's no opportunity for them and they're going to be socially promoted. Last year, you can use grades at the end of the school year to determine if you're going to go to the next school. I don't think anybody in the state of California got held back last year. Now, again, I'm not a proponent of holding kids back, but how do you really ascertain if they've completed the work they needed to do in that grade level? Then they graduate high school. You've got kids who've missed one full year. No, a year and a half. By the time we're done with this, it's a year and a half and maybe two years. And what they're showing the studies is that usually you fall back during the summers, you lose several months of education. It's not that you stop, you you actually regress. Correct. We're finding we're regressing so far, it's probably several years of education that we're losing here. So I don't know how you get it back, especially if you go back in the fall, not to full-time instruction in California. The governor who sends his kids to a private school is not mandating that teachers get back in the classroom in August. That's just that, and the last point, like, like you're saying, I've seen this all over the country. Everybody's big on public schools, but they send their children to private school. And it's like, we're failing these kids. I want every kid to have an opportunity at a quality education. I don't care what skin color you are, what race you belong to. Everybody should have it just because you come from a low income background. We were dirt poor as kids, but my dad wanted to make sure his kids were educated so they didn't have to go through what he went through, but we're failing. We're, and then we're wasting hundreds of billions of dollars. Actually, I was thinking of a, a question is you answered it earlier, but where does that 
money go when you provide all this money for the schools and oh here's a brand new school do kids really need a brand new school to be uh, better educated or is it just could we maybe up the teacher's salary a little bit open up some windows instead of paying for air conditioning and say hey this is how we're going to educate your children or why don't we take the model of the pods which has become popular lately and you want to learn chemistry fine we'll have a pod ted kids that will pay a tutor a hundred bucks a day to do it and all of a sudden he's making a thousand bucks a day And, and and really personalize it what about all these massive commercial complexes and malls that are shut down or vacant we don't need to build a single new school you can go and take the Mervins that shut down a few years ago, build a few walls, and there you go. Boom, it's done, right? There are ways we can mitigate these problems, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. But well, that, that requires a bit of, of humility, too. It also comes to accountability. We need to hold these lawmakers accountable. Just from the CARES Act, starting when the pandemic happened, they got over hundreds of billions of dollars, and they still want more. And it's not enough. Yeah, they're just moving the goalposts. It's a they're a professional goalpost moving organization, the teachers union. Yeah. Okay, but you've answered a lot of questions and there's a lot of things that we still have answers to. But why don't you give us, Lance, how people can find you and talk a little bit about your organization and what the California Policy Center does? Yeah, I'll be quick. The California Policy Center is a 501c3. We're an educational nonprofit that works for the prosperity of all Californians by bringing down the barriers to that prosperity and freedom. And we have a couple different projects, just briefly. One is called the Parent Union. Go to parentunion.org. There we provide a toolkit to parents and give them resources, advice, consulting, sometimes legal help to navigate the difficult challenges in education. We have another project called CLIO, where it's the California local elected officials. We help local electeds figure out how to navigate around the bureaucracy and unions and that kind of stuff. And then we also invite people to lead their union, and we help them out with that process. Uh, Janus' decision in 2018, right. the Supreme Court said, if, you belong, if you're a government employee, you don't have to belong to a union. And so what we do is we say, hey, you don't have to pay that 100 bucks a month, teacher, to teach. Your job is secure. You still get whatever benefits. And if you want to buy some liability insurance, we can find it for a lot cheaper than $1,200 a year. And then you're not beholden to a union who advocates against your very interest all the time. And if you go to mypaymysay.com, it's a place where we'll help you get out of the union. And so I every day work on trying to reduce every barrier we can to freedom in California. And that's my sole focus. And that's good because you give my brother's kids choices so they can get a quality education that's going to help them for the rest of their life. Yeah. We have so many teachers in the state of California. They just want to do the right thing. They just want to be good people and good teachers, but their unions are holding them back. So I say to you, teachers, get rid of your union, fire them, spend the time and attention on your kids, save that hundred bucks a month, go on a nice vacation this fall. And I think one thing we should put out there for our listeners is that is the education system either benefiting them or their children and, you know, how they can either change or, I know, look at it in a different light. And John, how can they do that? They can go to UbaldiReports at gmail.com. That's UbaldiReports at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UbaldiReports. If you go to UbaldiReports group on Facebook, check us out there. We're also going to be getting to do live streaming these podcasts. We're just working through the bugs. And then, Joe, we're also going to be doing something that's quite interesting. 
Yes, we're going to be doing a Patreon where uh, you can pay as little as a dollar to hear an uncensored uh, podcast with John and I giving us or giving you our full uncensored opinion on what's currently going on in the current administration as well as the country and out. They can do that. Just keep an eye out for it. We will start sending leaks out to Patreon so you can help support the show and everybody have a Yeah, and I want to thank Lance for being on our show. Thank you a lot. It was a pleasure. Thank you.